You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Is there a thread that connects us to an unusual path? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, after the break, some random thoughts and observations. Joining us now is Lee Matthew Goldberg, the author of The Ancestor. He's the editor-in-chief and co-founder, by the way, of Fringe, dedicated to publishing fiction outside of the box. And Lee, welcome to our own little box right here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right, so I want to talk about you first, if you don't mind. Sure. When I pick a book up, I think there are two stories. The first story is in between the covers of the book. The second story is what's outside the covers and what the writer is all about. So take us back to where you grew up and your influences and what you led us to learn about your new book, The Ancestor. I'm curious about your life. Sure. So the book takes place in Alaska. I'm the exact opposite. I grew up in New York City, downtown Manhattan. Um, and couldn't have had a further uh, childhood than somebody from Alaska. Um, but I've always been a lover of books and, and writing. And I even remember um, in like third grade, um, we had to like write like a diary entry every day. Right. And I remember going up to my teacher and I was like, you know, like how interesting is my life? Like I'm eight, you know, I, I play basketball, I play with my dog, like it's the same thing every day. And I was like, can I write uh, like, a, like a fiction story, like a story? And she was like, yeah, sure, why not? And it wound up being like 100 and something pages. And I think ever since then, I've, I've just been hooked and I've, I've written ever since. So it's really cool that I actually get to do that as a career right now. So do you remember the first story you ever wrote as a young, as a young child? Yeah, it had something to do with like my dog and he went into like a spooky hotel and there were like poltergeists. There was this young adult series, forget the author, but it was Benicula and, and the Celery Stalks at Midnight. It was all it was like these animals that got into like spooky situations. And I was really into that. So I think I was just copying it. So here's something to further your career. Okay. Next book, a children's book. I have a young adult book coming. coming okay. Out. So it's a YA book. I would say it's probably for like 15 and up. And it takes place in the grunge scene of the 1990s. And it's about this girl who runs away from home to become a singer and a grunge man and meet her idol, Kurt Cobain. So it's the start of a series. Both The first and second book will both be out next year. All right. So in terms of your life and the book, this particular book, The Ancestor, is about time and place and, yeah. and all the permutations, which fascinated me, by the way. Thank you. So where were you in your life? When you decide to sit down, I assume you write when you sit down, you put this book together because this, in a sense... There's a lot of thought that went into it because I can almost make the case it's two books in one. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think this is the most, well, I'm, I'm working on a different project that maybe is more ambitious just in size-wise, but this is probably up until then the most ambitious book that I, I tried. And I had an idea, the book came to me um, one winter, so I wrote it in 2018 to 2017. No, no, 2016 was when the idea came. Right. Um, and I heard this song by this band, Darling Side, called The Ancestor, and one of the lines was, go on, bury me. And I just imagined this man buried on ice and what would happen if he woke up. But I think you're right. It is many different books in one. It's about 
his journey and what happens when he sees basically his doppelganger, a man who looks exactly like him and follows that man home. And the man's wife and child makes him remember his own wife and child, except the hook is that they're from the 1890s, the gold rush era. So he's basically a man trapped in two different worlds. There's so many uh, secondary characters that have their own sort of arcs and their own plots. So I actually think it's, it's multiple books in one and um, I'm conceiving it as a TV series. Right. Um, that would be sort of the ultimate goal. And so I wrote it with that intention that all these characters could really kind of have their own seasonal arc for them. So I want to go back to what you just said. Mm-hmm. How do you define ambition as a writer? I think you have to be very ambitious. And, you know, what I've learned is nobody cares about your career as much as you do. You, know, you have a great agent, great editors, um, but you're a little bit on your own. So I think of ambition in terms of like hustling. Like I like to think of myself as, as a hustler. I right. wake up every day and how can I hustle my work and get it out to as many people as possible in as many different avenues as possible. And if you're not ambitious, then this is not a career for you because it's not going to happen. Now, you're a writer. One of my interests, and we did this in a few other podcasts, we brought singer-songwriters in. I think singer-songwriters are gifted storytellers. Are there any musical influences in your life? Or when you sit down to write, do you listen to music before, after to kind of cool your brain down a little bit? Yeah, I would say music is one of the, the biggest influences. I, I, I said before, the, the Ancestor, um, the idea sparked from a song called The Ancestor, you know, again, by this band, Darling Side. And my new book, actually, that's coming out next year, the YA series, is called Runaway Train. There was an amazing song by the band Soul Asylum. And I actually just reached out yesterday to Dave Perner's manager, and he said he would pass it along to Dave Perner. So, so we'll see if, if Dave Perner from Soul Asylum winds up reading it. That would be, I'd like to make my year. Like that uh, you're a brave man. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is Lee Matthew Goldberg. His newest book is called The Ancestor. I'm looking for big issues, themes. And this is what I came across, because the beauty of reading a book is I can read the book and something will resonate with me. Ten other people can read the book and have ten different responses. And I think that's the gift of what you do to engage us differently in our thought process. Mm -hmm. For me, the biggest issue is the stress of separation in all of its permutations. Agree or disagree? Yeah, it's definitely, you know, the main character is separated really by 120 years since you know, his family was around. So it's a separation that's kind of unimaginable. But I think it, it really echoes sort of what we're all going through. We're all a little separated right now. We're separated from each other. We're potentially separated from loved ones that live on the other side of the country. You know, so I, I think there's a relatability to the book that I didn't intend, but that I think definitely, you know, is, is echoing the present time. So as a writer, how have you been influenced or changed dealing with COVID, because we all have to deal with that and being isolated in a sense. But writers, in my mind, are always in a bubble and isolated when they sit down to work on their craft. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of the best built to deal with something like this because we are just in our heads all day, especially. Right. Like, um, you know, at the beginning, it really was a way for myself to turn off what was happening in the world. I was working on a new book and I was able to finish that book, you know, during the first few months of COVID way faster than I would have normally. And then I write every day when it's nice out in in Central Park. I have a tree and and that's sort of my office, I like to call it. So once I sort of 
felt comfortable enough to go outside again, like we're talking like May, that also became like a, a you know, a reprieve for me. I would just go to my tree and I would write all day. And, you know, for a few hours, I wasn't thinking about what we all were right. kind of dealing thinking about. But I do know of a lot of other writers have had a very difficult time getting work done. And for me, it luckily has been the opposite. So if I may, here's an idea for your next book about somebody living in a treehouse. Because I listened to an interview with Matthew McConaughey, who has a new book out there. And he says one of his greatest projects ever was building this treehouse when he was living in Texas. So I, I won't go much further than that. But if you've ever come up with that kind of book, please put me in acknowledgments. Okay. I would love it. Yeah, I've, I've had like a, it would be more of like fantasy sci-fi that would have to do with the tree. But I've had like little little sparks of an idea before. So absolutely, Larry, if, if that winds up happening, you're, you're in the acknowledgments. Thank you very much. I am fascinated by what I call the frozen north. Mm-hmm. I love Fargo, the original yeah. movie in the TV series. Yeah, I love Northern Exposure, which I think is terrific. Mm-hmm. And then John Krakow wrote a book called Into the Wild, But a Man That Disappears. All are really fascinating. You in this book are dealing with what I call, quote unquote, the frozen north. Well, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and literally everything you mentioned were, were huge influences. Even if I had seen, I mean, Northern Exposure I saw as a kid, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I didn't rewatch it, but I remembered a, a lot of it. And, you know, Alaska is its own world. It, it, it's a very tight-knit community, very small, especially right. where the ancestor takes place. You know, it's, it's, I guess, nearest to Nome, the fictional town would be. So it's very, very isolated. And all of that really had uh, a huge influence on the, on the book itself. And it has even almost this kind of otherworldly quality to it as well that really lent itself to the supernatural sci-fi aspect of, of the novel. That's interesting, and because uh, that's almost my next question, but I want to put myself in, into this equation briefly. I've been to Anchorage twice on the mm-hmm. first day of summer, which is an amazing experience. I was there because I was a coach for a marathon training team for Leukemia Society, and now yeah. Leukemia Lymphoma Society, but never gets dark. Yeah. It's a little dusky, but I love that experience in Anchorage, and then we took a, a train ride down to the part of, of Alaska and took a boat ride out. To it. it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You mentioned Supernatural because I, when I talked to your publicist, she said, well, uh, it's in a novel. It's, what, do we, what genre would we place it in? And there's a terrific television program that just ended called Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. And also, also one of the limited series was, was Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen King's book was also another great series called The Outsider. So yeah. this whole aspect of telling a story using what's real in a sense, quote unquote, and what is the supernatural. And you do that exceedingly well. You want to amplify on that? Yeah, I, I, I think all those are really good, um, you know, similar, similar shows. Because, I, I mean, like The Outsider, the majority of it exists in reality or our, our reality. And then there's elements where it tweaks. Um, so I think it's very palatable for somebody who necessarily isn't into science fiction, who has never tried science fiction. Right. Like a good, like welcoming them into it. And I think the ancestor is is the same. The, most of the book isn't science fiction, but there are elements of it that kind of are sprinkled throughout. And I think what I'm trying to do and, and what, I, what I try to do with a lot of my work and my future work is to not necessarily be so pigeonholed in a genre. 
I mostly write thrillers, but why can't they have some sci-fi influences? Why can't they have some other things? A lot of times you get a lot, you get real pushback, especially from the big five publishers. Um, This book in particular did. They didn't want to buy it because nobody knew how to classify it. We would make it past an, you know, an editor liking it. And then they would give it to the marketing department and the marketing department would be like, we don't know what to do with it. So I was very fortunate that I found my, my editor at an indie book press because he loved it for all of those reasons. He wanted it to be sort of unique and different. So I think as we move and in sort of into the future and future of publishing, they need to be more open to projects that kind of blur the lines a little bit between genres. You know, people who read books, they're already smart. They're reading books. And I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're smarter than the average person. They're already picking up a book and reading it. Um, and I think oftentimes they're not treated um, as smartly as they should, that they, that they could be open to more types of books if they were given the chance. So here's an interesting question. How do you challenge yourself as a writer and then challenge us as a reader? Yeah, so I kind of echoing that, I like to, you know, like the, the young adult series that I have coming out, um, Runaway Train, it's in the voice of a 16-year-old girl. You know, I'm not a 16-year-old girl in any way, shape, or form. So that was a huge challenge. But I was a 16-year-old. You know, I, I remember what that was like. I did a lot of research. I gave it to a lot of readers who are girls to kind of get their opinion. Right. And it was a really fun challenge to kind of be in this person who, you know, I would never have any connection to. So I, I really try to do that with a, with a lot of my work. If I'm always challenging myself and I'm always kind of, you know, invested then I think it translates to the book to the book itself. And, you know, I would say the same thing for readers too, you know, like try different genres, try different plots and, you know, challenge yourself as a reader as well. Uh, my guest is Lee Matthew Goldberg, the author of The Ancestor. Now, this is what you did for me that made me think about, because right now there's something called 23andMe and also <laughs> Ancestry.com. I think you turned that upside down with Wyatt Barlow. I love that because you inverted the tree in a sense. Well, that's how I looked at you. And we talked about tree and tree houses. We took this particular tree of heritage and turned it upside down. Yeah. I mean, it's a conundrum because, you know, and the more you read the book, the more you'll understand, but you know, Wyatt befriends a man that looks like his doppelganger, if he believes is his descendant, it would be his great, great, grandson. That man's grandfather is alive. His name's Papa Clifford. He's a character in the book. And that would technically be Wyatt's grandson. So there's all of these people who should never have met in life other than next to each other, potentially in a cemetery and you know, on a plot. Right. Somehow in life, they've been sort of pushed together. And there's a charge that kind of goes with that. Even if none of them want to maybe admit what's happening, something is connecting them beyond what we can explain. And I'm very intrigued by things in this world that we can't 100% explain. So I think, you know, my sort of study in that and, and spirituality has really affected this, this book as well. And, and a lot of my future books too. Um, so you, you mentioned spirituality and I'm, I'm, that fascinates me and also in terms of mythology. And in mythology, I'm nowhere an expert on this, so I'm going on the wrong path to jump right in. There's a very strong connection between humans and animals. Mm-hmm. And another great movie starring Brad Pitt was A River Runs Through It. 
at the end, his connection to the bear. Beautifully shot, a great visual movie. And you got Wyatt Barlow and a wolf. And that wolf, from the beginning of the book, in a sense, throughout the book, plays a very important role in terms of the narrative, but also in terms of mythology. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, the book opens with Wyatt waking and a wolf is there and he has to fight this wolf sort of right off the bat. So that's his you know, first kind of instance in this new world. But more and more, the book really kind of pushes the idea that he is the wolf and you know the characteristics that he has, that he has the ruthlessness of what he'll do to get what he wants is sort of, you know, channeled by a wolf type animal. And, you know, he, uh, another big part of the book, is, there's a lot of sort of Native American mythology and connections. You know, he befriends a guide when the book takes, goes back into the past and they spend a lot of time in, in Native American settlements, communities. And, and that's really where sort of he learns his deep connection um, sort of to this animal. And, and how much it affects him in the present time as well. Another issue that interests me, there's something called when they went into Alaska and California, something called fool's gold. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn it around based on the book and things that happen. Gold for fools. And what that means in terms of the search of gold with your characters. Yeah. And, you know, for why gold is a double-edged sword, you know, Anybody who's obsessed with anything and that that's their singular focus it never is good. So for Wyatt, you know, since he was younger, his sole sort of purpose has been to be a gold prospector and find gold. He missed out on that. He was too young for, you know, the California gold rush. That was his father. The Alaskan gold rush is a very small window of time. And even though he tells himself, I'm going because my son's sick and he needs medical attention, the gold will help that. Really, the, the pursuit of gold is a selfish trait of his. And even once gold is found, much like we learn with any narrative where money is sort of the sole purpose, right. um, it only brings, you know, like, like P. Diddy said, you know, more money, more problems. So it's the same thing with why, you know, more gold, more problems. So when I read that part of the book, I'm going to do another movie reference. The Lord of the Rings. And okay. how corrupted yeah. the search and having the ring. And that's what I thought about in terms of the search for gold, how it corrupts the soul of the people that find it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's sad, especially for a lot of these prospectors, more so in Alaska because it was such difficult terrain and it was so perilous for them that a lot of them risk, you know, their, their lives to get this gold. And then was it really sort of worth it? And for Wyatt and for, you know, his, his doppelganger Travis as well, when they are able to find some gold back in the present time, it only sort of brings more problems. You know, if you look at sort of the last third of the book, if gold is not found, how different would the plot go from there? And would it have been better off for the characters and the likely answer is yes. So let, let's talk about Travis. Travis and his wife, Callie, I think are really interesting. And you have a lot of ways you go with them. And they're all dealing with their own issues. And it's also a death in the Barlow family that plays into that because I think you're also addressing alcohol 
and drug abuse, which is very topical today. But you weave that in in a very fascinating way in terms of Wyatt using heroin to mm -hmm. go back to recapture his memories in 1898. And I love that part of the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, heroin becomes a, a real double-edged sword. You know, they're, the Native American settlement in the town, which has been really just ravaged by heroin, you know, it's a very depressed community, and heroin has kind of taken its hold, and it's it's just, just destroyed them. So the woman he meets, Aelin, she's the one who kind of introduces him to the heroin. But what heroin allows is it allows him to unlock his mind and to take him back and, and, and to really kind of illuminate his past and, and what it was all about. So he, he needs it, but again, the double-edged sword is, you know, how it could destroy him as well. And it's interesting because I've read some comments about the book in relation to drugs especially and how for, I guess, some readers, it like went too far in terms of that, that they were like with it and then um, like offended by sort of the drug use and advocating the drug where I think they, it was just a misread clearly is not advocating heroin in any way. You know, it almost destroys Wyatt, but it does in a very like train spotting way in the moment, give him what he needs. It, you know, gives him the clarity and then there's sort of the, the other end of it. All right. So there's something called stranger in a strange land. We've all heard about that and what that means to a lot of people. In terms of stranger in a strange land, was a stranger for Wyatt coming to today in the book, or in a sense, was a stranger for Callie for a short period of time going back to California? Yeah, yeah, I, I love that you brought that up, and um, you know, I think Callie's, I think probably my favorite character in the book, also because I think she can get overlooked because you know, there's so much else going on. Um, but yeah, Callie is Travis's wife. She met him when she was on Alaskan cruise from California and stayed. So she's really a fish out of water in, in a lot of ways the why it is. And they're having marital problems. So she decides to take their little kid and go back because their parents in California. And the, the purpose of that chapter is, is sort of a lot. Now, on one hand, you know, the, the book needs a, you need to take a breath. So much is happening. The plot is accelerating so fast that that chapter is needed to kind of just take a step back from everything for her and for readers as well. And there's some comic relief going on in that chapter too. Right. She goes to the party and mm -hmm. this girl gets a chicken bone in her head. You know, like there's a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of me just adding some comic stuff. But it's a sad chapter too, because in a lot of ways, she really was never meant to come to Alaska. She fell in love and like, that was great, but she's not an Alaskan and she probably never really will be. So she's somebody who's been displaced from her rightful trajectory unfortunately, probably will never be able to go back to that. So she's kind of stuck in two worlds in a lot of the same ways that Wyatt is. And I think that's how, as the book progresses, the two of them have such a connection. Even if she never really would admit it, there's an attraction created by somebody like him because he's like her in a lot of ways too. Right. Um, this is Artful Periscope. My guest is Lee Matthew Goldberg, author of The Ancestor. He's also written The Mentor, Slow Down, and The Desire Card. His pilots and screenplays have been finalists in Book Pipeline, Stage 32, Screencraft, and Hollywood Screenplay Contest. So let's switch gears. You fascinate me. You're multi-talented, I believe. It's a different muscle, writing pilots 
and screenplays, especially if you're writing everything on spec. Yes. So let's talk about that part of your life. Sure, sure. So it, it's a completely different muscle. I sometimes look at it almost like a palate cleanser. So between novels, I'll work. Oh, I like that. Just because it, it, it lets me think and like look at things differently. And you could write a screenplay a lot faster than a book. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's easier or that a good screenplay is in any way easier, but it's 90 pages. So, you know, it, it's something that could be done a lot faster. It's a whole different world in terms of the business end. Um, so it's a world I'm still learning and I'm still trying to like wedge my, my you know, foot in. But right now, the mentor at one point was optioned and we had all these great people attached and somebody wrote a really bad script and the whole project fell apart. So I kind of made it my goal to write the scripts myself for my books. And that way, if nothing happens, nothing happens, but at least I tried. On my script, we have some producers who are interested. They've made an offer and we're actually just waiting now on the final things between the publisher and them in terms of like percentage points. So if everything goes smoothly, something will will happen with that. Um, and yeah, I'll be very, very happy because I've worked really, really hard to turn this book into a movie. So that would be great. Now, when I came to the book, being very honest, I was hoping for a slightly different ending. Did you ever think of a different ending? I only did. I, mean, I don't want to give anything away, yeah. Yeah. but you, you really made me think because this is what I want to happen, but I didn't write the book. You did. But I wondered, did you ever think about changing anything about the book? I had that ending in mind really. The, the thing about the ending is it tells you what the ending is going to be really the whole time. So, yeah, 100% is foreshadowing. Even if you try to pretend like that's not what's going to happen, right. like not, there's no way it could end like that. It, it really does tell you that. We had, when we first sent the book out, a really big editor at a big house who loved the book but hated the ending. And there was a talk for like two seconds. What if you remove that ending? Would then he buy it and you know give it sort of this whole other life and this and that? And I really was not happy. I would have been happy because it would have been a much bigger deal and you know um, at, at a very big big press, but the ending wouldn't have been true what I wanted for it. I think he wanted a happier ending is how it was sort of brought about. I like leaving things a little bit up in the air. So there's a potential that I'll, I'll write, especially if a, a TV series kind of winds up coming out of this book, that I would 100% write a sequel. And so the book really ends in a way where a new book completely begins. Well, and I don't want to give anything away, but there's a yeah. great what if about mortality there. Yeah, so the second book would be very different, um, and it would be almost that the characters kind of switch roles a little right. bit. But I have a, I have somewhat of an idea of what I would want to do for it. Where if it ended with like a nice little bow, then that that wouldn't have been. And I think it wouldn't have. You know, the the book is about death. It's a sad book. I think it it wouldn't have been fair to the book end it in any other way well before we say goodbye to you uh, we had a talk off air in a sense that you've done a multitude of interviews has there any question i haven't asked that should be asked have i missed anything that you want to address right now so th this actually has been one of my favorite interviews i think you've done this, it's been fantastic and i think explored more in depth a little bit about the book which is interesting rather than kind of you know sometimes just broad questions 
Well, I'll ask you. So without giving the ending away, had you wanted a happy ending or a sad ending to it? This is me. I wanted a little more of an open-ended but happier ending because I, a book works for me if I'm engaged in the characters yeah. and hoping for the best that they want in terms of accessing their dreams. Whereas Wyatt has a very side of him that's really violent. And, and so you're hoping for the person who has some other troubles, maybe this is the way to access a better future for them and their loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I totally agree. You know, my, my goal for the book was really for people to fall in love with the characters, even when they do terrible things and they disappoint you, which why it does many, many, many times. But I was going through a lot when I wrote this book, there was a lot of death in my life while I was writing it. So I wasn't in a happy place. And I think it would have been very difficult for me to kind of fake that in, in the book. And like I said, it, it just so happened that it really was meant to end the way, the way it was meant to end. But I really appreciate that it, you know, it was heartbreaking because you, you love even the bad characters. You know. Right. Well, my guest has been the author of The Ancestor, Lee Matthew Goldberg. After the break, some random thoughts and observations. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to podcast Artful Periscope. On this part of the episode, by the way, if you're just joining us now, the beauty of podcasts are unlike radio and TV programs, you can do anything these days with technology. If you missed the first part with Lee Matthew Goldberg, go back and check him out. He was terrific, terrific writer. This book is called The Ancestor. So random thoughts and observations. But I'm going to be as honest as I can be, and hopefully that'll be enough. For the last four years, probably even more than the last four years, I've been trying to understand what has happened to America. And in terms of real change, and it's probably been occurring over maybe the last 30 years. And the question is, how do we get past, as Americans, having knee-jerk reactions and understand the currents below the surface. After elections, not just this election, after every elections, there is what I call political obituaries. Who's still alive and viable and who is passed on probably to get their next job in a think tank? It's almost like in the business world, a profit and loss statement where things are working and where your losses are, and then making your analysis from there. Now, this is my analysis, and like any other type, this is just a snapshot in time. It's gonna take months, years, and decades to understand what has transpired in the last four or five years, and even before that, as, as I said, probably the last 30 years. Now, I'm looking at both Trump 
and Biden. Now, I believe based on the election and the amount of people that voted for both of them, record numbers for both the president-elect and the current president, I think the support for Biden is very wide, but not necessarily deep. I think the support for Trump is not as wide, but very, very deep. Case in point, the Trump supporters still still dismiss COVID-19 and think of it as nothing more than the flu. Look at all the events he had all over the country. Thousands of people packed in, not wearing masks because they he didn't wear a mask until very late. And he kept saying, originally, it's, it's not real. It's fake news. Don't believe what lamestream media is talking about that. So a lot of people, including the President of the United States, were in denial. In a sense, denial is more than a river, if you think about that. Now, moving on, talking about political obituaries, what has happened to what used to be called America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Now, talk about the clown show. And this bothered me because images are everything and a picture speaks a thousand words. The last image of him was doing in front of an audience how they're going to challenge the courts with no real viable challenges. And his hair dye is running down the sides of his face. And the media just jumped on that. And I said, I remember years ago, as a quick digression, when the horse ruffian went down in a major race. And they kept showing it over and over and over again. And I said, once was enough. I'm not a big fan of the current Rudy Giuliani where he is in his life, but I said, enough is showing that picture blown up and the leads of every news story, except maybe probably on Fox, of the way he looked and it was very sad, sweating and the hair dye running down the sides of his face. And I also think that you can kind of compare him to, if you know your history, of the connection to Joseph McCarthy and also Roy Cohen and connect the dots where they believed truth be damned, fake news, fake news. And that thread runs right through to the current president. Now, another person out of that New York environment is Al Sharpton. And if you remember, Al Sharpton had the whole thing with Tawana Brawley. It was terrible what he did, quote unquote, involved with Tawana Brawley and all the accusations were not true. So if you compared Rudy Giuliani at that time with Al Sharpton, he was rising. Al Sharpton was going way, way down in terms of how the public received him. Turn it around now, Rudy has dropped down tremendously in how people see him and respect for him. And in a sense, Al Sharpton is now mainstream throughout a good portion of America. The one thing that Trump did very smart in terms of his campaigns and his surrogates, that he pounded, pounded the Democrats with their socialists. They're going to turn America into socialism. They, this was very effective. The whole campaign about defunding the police, the whole campaign about his opponent was going to shut down America and he was going to end fracking. 
And the one that really resonated because in down ballots, the Democrats suffered. They lost some Senate races they probably should have won, and they lost House seats. The majority in the House has been narrowed dramatically, and that's because of down ballot voting. What Biden did really well, he focused on COVID and his plans for attacking COVID-19. And he also brought back, everybody's saying he's hiding in his basement and he's not out there. He's bringing back the importance of institutions and civility. In a sense, he campaigned on being the anti-Trump. Now, I don't know if you watch CNN and Kristen Amanpour got in trouble for making a connection between Kristallnacht in Nazi Germany and some connection to the Trump administration. And she got hammered for that. But if you also know your history, there is somebody going back, a man named Neville Chamberlain was known as the appeaser for Adolf Hitler. Now are there, and this may be a stretch, but these are my thoughts and my observations. Are there appeasers in the current government in terms of President Trump? and appeasing him through his four years in office. I want to mention some names. Well, I'm start for us off with the whole, for the majority of the Republican Party that's in office now, former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who, by the way, thought, okay, okay, we don't like him, but we can control him. We can manipulate him. We can get what we want. Well, that got turned around. And if you look at the four years, who controlled who? Donald Trump, through his tweets, controlled the Republicans, got his agenda out there, and he turned the tables on them. Mitch McConnell, some people call him Moscow Mitch. He's probably the second most powerful person in the Republican Party. I look at other senators like Ron Johnson, even Susan Collins that says, yes, 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 and still goes along with Trump. And why did they not speak up? Talk about appeasers. Why didn't they speak up about kids in cages? Why didn't they speak up about anti-immigration? Why didn't they speak up about attacking the intelligence agencies? Why didn't they speak up about the rule of law? Those are all really, really important issues. Moving to my next observation. I just finished watching The Good Lord Bird based on the James McBride novel, starring Ethan Hawke as John Brown. And great, great storytelling. I recommend that to anybody. In a couple of my tweets, I mentioned that. So, And it was on Showtime, so if you miss it, just go back on demand. You can see it again. And why do I mention John Brown? John Brown's insurrection was the precursor to the Civil War. On the other side of the coin of the John Brown coin in a sense, is Donald Trump. And it's also the possibility of Donald Trump out of office being the precursor to what's happening in America in terms of a cold civil war. And that's something that we can ruminate over. But we do know that President Trump is not going gently into the night. He's got, as I said, a very deep base in terms of his followers who are very tribal and look at the opposition, not such as somebody they disagree with in terms of policies, 
they disagree and dislike who the opposition is, the other side is the supporters of Joseph Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, because I'm still want to say Harris. And that's something this country's going to wrestle with. And uh, the potential for discord is very high. I'm just not hoping, unlike the Civil War, there will not be blood in the streets. Now, what are the biggest issues facing the Biden-Harris administration? Will there be a new coronavirus relief package? Now, it's, there's really good news out there, by the way, that the vaccines will start coming out in this year. The frontline people that need it and people working in the hospitals and nurses. And if you're watching the reports all over the country, they are freaking out with the amount of cases that are coming into the emergency rooms throughout the whole country, but especially in the Midwest and the upper Midwest. They're running out of beds, they're running out of equipment, they're running out of staffing. There are not enough nurses to get into the COVID units. So that's something that the new administration is gonna have, have to wrestle with. And this story is indicative of taking the word of Donald Trump and his followers and acolytes. Do you remember Carl Rittenhouse? the teen accused of shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, even though I can't see you, you probably, sh I hope you're shaking your head because this is a very interesting outcome from that situation. He recently told the Washington Post that he used the $1,200 he got in stimulus relief to pay for the weapon that he used in the shooting and murders that he's accused of in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Are things that we deal with, the information that we ingest, the people that believe or don't believe, there are consequences. There are serious consequences for how we absorb our information, the bubbles that we're in and how we react. So once again, I'll go to the new administration and I hope they can understand these bubbles these echo chambers have to be broken down and people who reasonably disagree can be brought back into the fold. The people who are the outliers are not going to go away. Earlier, I wrote in a podcast earlier, that I believe the Proud Boys and the fringes on the right are looking for their own version, their own American version of a caliphate. They want a place to be called home. They're not going to get the whole state of Idaho but they're looking for a place where they think they could live free and have total freedom and do and say what they want. The rest of the country doesn't matter. And there are elements out there, what I call the dark corners of America, that that's, that's their game plan. That is really their game plan. I recently started uh, using Twitter. And this is another interesting story in terms of how we get our information. Twitter is now being under the threat of regulation and is plagued by serious security breaches. They are now appointing one, this is ironic, appointing one of the world's best hackers to tackle issues facing the company that is Twitter. So everybody needs to be responsible and be careful how we use the, our voices and how we disseminate information. I'm gonna leave you with this. I am a big fan of 
quality storytelling, whether they were writers like my previous guest, Lee Matthew Goldberg, like singer-songwriters, they're terrific storytellers. Right now, in the second season on HBO, is his dark materials based on a book by Pullman. Great, great storytelling with terrific visuals and starring a really great actress. I love her in all of her roles, Ruth Wilson. You may remember her for the series on HBO called The Affair. Also uh, from BBC, Luther, and I can highly, highly recommend it. I leave you with this. The answer is Alex Trebek. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She broke your throne and she cut your hair and fell.